I've done a pretty good job at erasing the word sorry from my vocabulary. And that is, it feels really good. <laughs> um, the incessant sorries that we tend to, you know, speak out into the world when we're shrinking ourselves because we just, that, that just kind of is our default of, you know, what we've been taught to do um, is something that I'm, I'm shedding. And, and it, it's just something that it feels much more aligned with who I truly am. I believe that what we do as women in the privacy of our own minds is the single greatest determinant of our lives. I'm Emma Title, and you are listening to the Women Today podcast, where we are unpacking and investigating the new female psychology. I am a psychotherapist, coach, and teacher who is passionate about women's internal and external freedoms. You are in the right place if you want to hear in-depth stories about women's lives. On this show, we dig deep into the minds and hearts of women to understand what it really takes to heal, to grow, and to experience psychological freedom so that we can create lives of authenticity, fulfillment, and contribution. This is a place to receive nourishment, inspiration, and guidance as we continue to show up for the complexity and nuance of our lives as women. I'm so glad that you're here, and let's get started with today's episode. Hey, and welcome back everyone to another episode of the podcast and to our final episode for the month of April, where we've been focusing on the themes of women and trauma and triumph. And I'm particularly excited to be sharing today's interview guest with you, Dr. Marielle Bouquet, because she's going to be talking with us about intergenerational trauma, what it is, how it shows up, and how we can start to heal not only ourselves, but the people who came before us, as well as the people who will come after us. Dr. Marielle Bouquet is a Columbia University-trained licensed psychologist, holistic mental health expert, and sound bath meditation healer. Her work centers on helping people to heal their whole selves through holistic mental health wellness practices and on healing wounds of intergenerational trauma. She also focuses on creating and delivering anti-racism lessons and workshops And she believes in the liberation of our minds from oppressive systems as necessary qualities for our overall health and wellness. Dr. Marielle is a really beautiful, present, grounded, thoughtful, and conscientious human being. Getting to spend this hour having the conversation and interview with her felt like a true gift for me, for my own nervous system. And even though I've studied a lot about trauma, both personal and collective, I learned a lot of new things, just hearing it from a different perspective and how it lives in Dr. Marielle and everything she's come to understand from her research and her training and her experience of working in the field with all different types of people and looking at the concept and the manifestation of intergenerational trauma. So I know you're going to really enjoy this interview. It's moving, it's thoughtful, it's educational, and I experienced it like a transmission. So if you're able to listen to this one in a receptive state, and maybe as you're doing some things around the house or going for a walk, Dr. Marielle really offers a type of presence and embodiment and grounding that I think is rare to find in 
in human beings in this day and age with all the stress we deal with in modern life. So it's a real gift and an opportunity to have her voice here with us on the podcast. And I hope you enjoy. Dr. Marielle, welcome. Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time and your precious energy to be with us here on the Women Today podcast. I'm incredibly grateful. Yeah, I'm, I'm grateful to be here with you and that um, we're both in a moment where we could have conversations together. Yeah. So I'd love to just start out by by asking you how you are at a really true and deep level. How are you doing today? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, in this moment, I am in a place where I'm holding a lot of weight, a lot of the weight of the world and the many ways in which we are involved in a pandemic that continues to uproot our entire human community. And, and then the the more specific um, endemics that we're, we're all experiencing and the, the immensity of violence that's just ensuing in our world, racial violence and, um, and other types of violence that are just creating a lot of heaviness for us all. So being a healer, I carry a lot of that and I, um, I work with a lot of that heaviness for people. So right now I'm, I'm working on grounding and being well and, um, channeling ways that I can be present and and grounding for others. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And that all makes so much sense to me. And I know it's been another incredibly painful week in the Black community. And I can only imagine that there's just a huge amount of showing up that you're doing and digesting and processing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, all of that is necessary work. And I feel a deep honor to be able to serve my community in that way. And it's also important for um, myself and other Black healers to make sure that we're, we're staying well. You know, we, we can um, only fill cups if our own cups are filled, right? And so just doing a little bit of that. Yeah. What are some of your favorite ways to fill your cup when it's just you and you? You know, just um, things that are so immensely basic fill my heart with so much joy. This morning, we're having these sprinkles of rain where I'm based. And this morning I was in my backyard. I was just kind of putting up a new lock on my gate and it started to sprinkle some rain and I just stood there in awe of just the beauty that mother nature is it's just you know just the sounds of the rain just dripping on all of my surroundings and the trees and the plants around me was a moment that was so incredibly simple yet so beautiful so and whenever I get an opportunity for something spontaneous like that I take it wholeheartedly and very mindfully so things like that are, are what I've been getting into a lot lately oh thank you for sharing that I feel 
I know those moments and I feel transported just hearing about that moment of presence really is what it sounds like. Yeah, absolute presence and intentional presence too, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm, beautiful. Well, you know, listeners got to hear about your professional background and, and the work that you do in the world. But whenever I have someone on the podcast, I always love to start with the personal. And I'm just so curious how you got into healing work, how you got into psychology, and just to know a bit more about your your life and your trajectory and how you've arrived here today in the space, the place that you are. Yeah, you know, I really like to tell the story because just in the same way that storytelling kind of offers us this, just in general, every time that I tell my story, it brings me into a place where I get transported back to those moments. And sometimes new things come up for me that I can recall, you know, when I place myself back there, which I love so much. Um, But whenever I explore how I landed at where I am, I always get placed back at when I was very, very young, um, around six years old, seven years old. I used to just have this level of intuition that I now understand better. But of course, as a young, highly intuitive, very kind of emotionally attuned child, I wasn't uh, so perceptive of what was happening around me or that I was in any way, you know, just um, kind of higher on the emotional spectrum, if you may. And I just remember capturing a lot of the emotions that were around me. If someone was sad, I would feel it profoundly. If someone was angry, I would feel it profoundly. If someone was in their joy, I would feel it profoundly. And so it was, and I remember being someone that also expressed emotions very vividly and had what we now in therapy, we call it whenever we're referring to child work, big emotions, right? Um, And I just recall soaking up a lot of what the environment, um, you know, had to offer as far as emotions. And in my community, I I remember there being just a lot of emotional pain, a lot of grief. Um, I grew up in a place where um, economically we were in poverty for a good portion of our lives. And so a lot of that was, um, there were experiences that marked pain for my community members, marked pain for my family. And so all of that they were all experiences that I would soak up. Um, I didn't know what I would do with that, right? But I do remember one time I did mention to my mother that I wanted to do something about the pain that I saw people experience. I just didn't know what that meant. Um, And I, being in the Black Latinx community, I didn't really get any exposure to mental health, mental wellness, or therapy until in my late 20s, really. Um, And at that time, I actually started going to therapy. I remember my therapist reflecting to me that I would make a good therapist and pushing me into uh, applying for uh, a graduate degree in the field. So, um, so yeah, you know, you, you get this like moment in time when I was younger and I was really, um, you know, developing this intuitiveness and this uh, way of containing emotions for others. And then 
fast forward to moments when I received my own therapy, I started volunteering in the area of mental health in my community for about two years. And then I finally just took a leap of faith and said, this is, this is what's aligned for me. And I, I decided to go into grad school. Wow. And did you grow up in near the area where you live now? Yeah. So I'm very, um, attached to my family. So <laughs> you probably won't find me very far from them at any given time. Uh, the furthest I, I have been has been uh, living in New York and different areas of Manhattan and Brooklyn. Um, but I am based in New Jersey and my family, um, we all currently live, although my parents live in a different town, but we still live about 10 minutes away from where we grew up. Um, so I, you know, I, I venture into North New Jersey is where I grew up. I venture into that city quite often. I live there in my adult life um, for some time. And I have a, a, a true love for that city and for the people within it. So I think a lot of me is still representative of Newark. And, and so it's, to me, it matters to stay close. Beautiful. I love, I love hearing these stories and narratives and just how early you can trace sort of this, this, inherent way of being and then how over the course of your life you've developed it and now into a beautiful body of work that's inspiring thank you so much you know it makes me think about all the children in the world that have these gifts within them right these these very like um innate ways of just being that can be transformed into a passion right um, and I do recall I had one science teacher in the fifth grade that was incredible. And I just remember this deep love for science. And as a PhD, I'm a scientist practitioner. So I get to dabble into the scientific, you know, kind of part of me a bit. Um, but it just makes me, you know, all that more motivated to motivate others to, you know, to just like bring out whatever is innately in them as a, as a true gift and passion that they could offer the world. Mm. It's so beautiful. I'm curious, you, you went to Columbia Teachers College, is that right? That's right, yes. Okay, so what was it like for you going through that PhD program and sort of getting trained in that more ivory tower conventional system as somebody who was deeply emotional from a young age, like I'm just curious about that path for you. Yeah, I mean, at the intersection of my high intuitiveness and all of my identities, um, there was a, a very complicated trajectory through an environment that was really unfamiliar to me. Interestingly enough, I I was like um, I I had like all straight A's, like I had a 3.9 something GPA um, in my master's program and had like, you know, I was like the president of the psychology club. Like I had all these like merits and, you know, and so I could see where, you know, I, I would be qualified, right, for a position as a student within Teachers College. But I think being someone who comes from a background where um, first of all, I applied to Teachers College only because it was proximal to my parents. 
not because I had no idea what an Ivy League institution was until I was about two months into my time at Columbia. And I remember going into the gym and it had, um, they had all the Ivy League flags. And I was like, what is this? And what is brown? And I just started like questioning all of that. Um, however, I really had no idea, uh, which is kind of fascinating because I think most people go into an institution like this, understanding its history and understanding kind of, you know, its social positionality. And, and I just didn't really kind of have any of that. But I think once all of that information was within my knowledge base, I did get a bit of imposter syndrome because I thought, oh man, like, am I in the right place? Right. You know, I'm like this black Dominican immigrant from Newark, New Jersey. That's like in this, I retire with a lot of individuals that come from well-to-do backgrounds and backgrounds that are none of what mine are. Right. And so um, it felt very unfamiliar. And if you start thinking about all of that, where you feel out of place, you feel like lack of familiarity, lack of connection. Um, and there is, you know, some of the the climate is, is very, um, it can be a little bit um, competitive, right? And so like all of that is like not within my nature. And so it was just, it was kind of hard, right? You know, it was like stepping into a competitive environment when what I wanted was to be more collectivistic and like, collaborative, right? I had to do a little bit of shifting in order to survive um, just socially, right? And and academically. Um, But I do appreciate the incredible mentors that I was able to connect with there. Just really wonderful people and people that um, they themselves have their own story. And, And they were able to help me through their own narratives to feel as though I belonged. And that to me was something that um, felt very loving. Like I felt like love was at the center of their mentorship. And and so in terms of feeling big, I felt big love too, mm-hmm. right? So <laughs> I felt big anxiety, but I felt big love. And so I think, you know, I found my way through, um, you know, with the, the combination of the two, the anxiety definitely, as we know, especially low level anxiety can be a motivator. So I, I try to utilize it to, help motivate me to cross the finish line, but it was very unfamiliar territory for me. I can imagine. And I'm so glad that you connected with incredible mentors who, who embraced you and that you felt that big love. That's wonderful. Yeah, me too. And they're still good friends of mine, um, colleagues, we, you know, we, we stay in touch. We chat almost every day. I mean, we built community and, and that's, very special to me. That's awesome. So here you are and you do this incredible work on intergenerational trauma. And is that, I mean, I can hear the seeds of the interest in it in your childhood, but is that something that really started to develop through the course of your PhD work or something that came afterwards? Like how did you start to find your specialization and your niche? It was a little bit of both. So it definitely did start yet again, right? Like without any concrete direction at the PhD level. And the way that it manifested was through this experience that I continued to have most notably in my clinical training, like when I was actually doing clinical hours and feeling like there was a limitation and that limitation was so, it was unnamed. It it felt prominent, like it, like every 
client to client, like it felt like there was like this thread where something was happening that felt like we were hitting a wall. And I, I also, it's not that it was only reflected in my work. We have clinical team meetings, right? And so in the team meetings, when everyone's debriefing on their cases and what's happening, I felt like I you know, was hearing semblances of the same kind of barriers. And I don't think anyone was really like calling it out. We were just sitting in, you know, the, just the discomfort of the fact that we were hitting walls with clients and didn't really kind of know where to navigate the treatment. And I remember around my fourth year or so as a doctoral student, I decided to develop this way to get information out into the public. And it was based mostly on the barrier around lack of access to mental health related information, right? And just really wanting to expand that knowledge onto folks that weren't within the ivory walls, right? Because we have this institutional practice where we excavate information from the communities. We develop this, these, you know, research protocols and, um, you know, find new information and then deposit it into these scholarly journals and, and never touch the communities, right? And so I wanted to reflect whatever it was that I was learning back onto the community so that they could have that information readily available to them. However, in that process, I was also realizing that there were other barriers that we were experiencing within the, the actual profession that weren't being identified. And eventually, we, we, we say this word complex trauma a lot in clinical team meetings. However, it's almost as if we say the word and then we don't unpack it. And, and I'm talking about like, I'm in like these very advanced, very like elite high level, like my training was even at Columbia University Medical Center. I trained there for three years. I worked there, for, you know, after I graduated as a staff clinician. And so I, you know, it, I just heard the word complex trauma so much, but what about complex trauma, right? Like what, what can we learn about it? You know, how is it that complex trauma is also historical trauma? How is it that it's also collective trauma? How is it that it also has to do with trauma that's passed down through the lineage? And what can we learn about this so that then our strategies and interventions are more tailored and they're more strategic and they're more intentional? And I started thinking about all of those things with a lot of frustration. And then I got into wonderful texts like The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, which I'm sure everybody listening probably knows about, right? Um, Mark Willens, It Didn't Start With You, right? Just these incredible, incredible pieces of work that helped me to connect the dots. And I started thinking that's the missing link. That's what we're missing. We're missing this lens. We're missing that intergenerational piece. This is where I need to focus my efforts because people need this. And so eventually, you know, I got driven into, into learning more and more about the full context of it, right? I'm still an ongoing learner because we all are. It's a fairly new area of trauma that, you know, we're exploring scientifically. However, I think it's important, just as I did way back when I was a student, in imparting the knowledge onto the general public, to continue doing that while we're learning. Beautiful and so inspiring. Mm -hmm. 
I want to take a step back just for anybody who's listening. Um, and for me, I, I, I am an ongoing learning as learner as well. How would you define intergenerational trauma? I like to define it by helping us understand that it's the type of trauma that lies at the intersection of nature and nurture. So it's the the one trauma that really has these biological roots and it also has social roots. And what I mean by that is that we have through the field of epigenetics, which is a a field that helps us to understand gene expressions and and really kind of in, in general, just the way that, you know, we are kind of formatted genetically, right? Um, that field and the individuals within it are helping us to understand the ways in which there are um, gene expressions that happen within the individual that um, are actually capturing how much a person embodies stress throughout a lifetime. And what that means is that when we're talking about the experience of complex trauma, we're talking about something that's chronic, something that's usually pretty lifelong or long-standing and that what that does to the body is that it it makes it so that a person that is in trauma for that extended amount of time is producing stress hormones namely cortisol but other hormones as well and that those hormones are being programmed into the body as for lack of a better term like genetic mutations i think they call them transmutations within epigenetics and and basically when a person has that genetic re-expression and then they reproduce, those genetic re-expressions, the same with all of the other genetic um, material, gets transitioned onto the baby in utero. And so what we know about that is that it just creates an emotional vulnerability for a baby then child. And if you can think about a child that has the emotional vulnerability and is tender to the world, right? And then you have a world that is just filled with with so much that it can, you know, bring us in terms of stress and in terms of trauma. Um, Then you have the recipe for, you know, what can be, you know, a transmission of trauma down onto that child. Um, And so that's a little bit of more the biological kind of process. However, on the social end, we're already talking about there being a parent that has this chronic trauma, right? And if that is the case, then we have to understand how a person presents socially when they're in trauma. Usually, if there is a lot of preoccupation that a person has within their own emotional world and they're a parent to a newborn, a baby, a child, there is a likelihood that they could be misattuning with their baby and not present to their baby's needs because they are um, just, you know, hyper aroused or uh, feeling triggered constantly, like all of those things, right? And so the baby isn't getting their needs met. They're experiencing parental wounds. And then they're going out into a world where they could experience bullying, they could experience racial violence, they could experience other kinds of traumas all of that starts becoming how trauma becomes a part of then the next generation. And if that person doesn't reconcile that trauma within their life and it becomes a complex trauma for them, then we have the recipe for yet another generation to be the recipient of the trauma. I'm so glad I asked that question. And I I just so deeply appreciate you breaking it down because 
and you said it as well, like, and I am guilty of this myself as a therapist. It's so easy to say like, oh, that person has complex trauma. But then if we don't stop and pause and actually take in the fullness of what that means and how wide the impact is, and then also, well, what do we do about it? It's, I'm just catching myself and how I can be lazy or complacent, you know, and, and just your breakdown is hitting me in a different way. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you also for asking the question. I, I love, you know, always to, to elaborate upon that piece because I think, um, again, you know, knowledge can be really empowering, but um, it's important for us to have an understanding of what truly does happen, you know, when trauma is a part of an entire household. Yeah, and how the impacts can look so different on each individual because we are different genetically and we, you know, we have different strengths and weaknesses, but it's like, how does that play out in in a bigger context and how does it play out with the next generation too? Wow. So in your findings, both, you know, the research scientific end of your studies and ongoing work, And then I know you work so much with humans in real time. What are you finding is most effective for addressing this intergenerational trauma? Well, it is something that, you know, has to be done um, in layers, right? Just like intergenerational trauma has its layers. You know, we have to work um, first with the individual, right? But then um, also with the ways in which trauma have has been proximal to that individual. So um, when that person is ready to transition from the individual work, you know, doing work that that extends into other people within their lineage. Um, I like to call it, you know, um, healing back, healing the presence and healing forward because that the work that we're doing is usually ancestral work or lineage-based work or, you know, work that really gets at the fullness of how has trauma been represented within your extended family. And some of the work that we do uh, embodies like narrative uh, kinds of strategies around, you know, building um, a family narrative tree, right? Kind of an extension from like a genogram, right, into something that's more tailored and focused to the very experiences of uh, intergenerational trauma and the very representations of how intergenerational trauma looked within the household. And then um, the healing in the presence is something that looks a little bit more like the trauma-informed kinds of practices that we know within the field, right? But they they take into account the ways in which this person has also experienced trauma by seeing trauma models, by seeing it um, seeing someone's pain or having someone's pain being imposed upon them, like, um, you know, having perhaps a parent that had angry outbursts because they were embodying their own trauma. And so just really kind of processing that piece. And then the healing forward is more communal work. It's more about, you know, what can be done within that person to build agency and responsibility toward disrupting the, the trauma lineage and uh, doing so either with their own kids, right? Or with an extended part of their community. Mm -hmm. 
And and with that piece, the healing forward, either with their own kids or the extended broader community, does that look like gathering or talking about it, singing, dancing? You know, I know every culture has different ways of doing this, um, but I'm just curious about that. Yeah, it's a great question. And that um, is pretty variable, right? So in part, you know, um, some of the things that can happen in the home is that we, we can like through the process of the therapy itself, uh, produce alternative behaviors, alternative ways of engaging um, that can be the ways in which they model their own responses, right? So that they're not trauma responses, but they're responses that embody a, a, a different way of being so that the, the generation that's now the new generation, right? That's living in the home, isn't internalizing trauma responses because they're learning them in the home. And so that's a part of how the disruption can happen forward. Um, but also having concrete conversations, you know, that expands from their own now new knowledge base about, you know, um, how to engage stress, right? Um, but also, you know, in part, when if we start thinking about disrupting even before the next generation is present, right? Like even before, uh, let's say a woman becomes a mother, um, being able to engage in the process of restructuring the ways in which one engages their nervous system, right? And, and do intentional daily ritualistic nervous system restoration practices so that all of that which has been captured in the body isn't extended forward. And so doing some of that preemptive work around um, you know, how we heal forward before the next generation comes into an, uh, an in utero environment that feels unsafe. Oh, this, thank you so much for all of that. And um, do you, I just want to ask you a question. Do you feel like talking about trauma itself, like even if we're not in a traumatic situation, you and I were having a lovely conversation, but that it can be activating just in discussing it theoretically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, which is why it's always so important to whenever we're talking about trauma or surfacing trauma stories in any way that we take care of ourselves, right? I like to, to utilize, I'm, I'm sure that this language has been out there well before me, but I call it the sandwich method which is, you know, I, whenever I know that something's going to be um, trauma-centered, I usually do some healing practices for myself before and after just to, you know, make sure that I'm doing restoration um, for myself to, to offset the impact of the trauma narrative. Yeah. Okay, that that's affirming for me because so this month on the podcast, you know, we're focused specifically on trauma. And last month we were focused on money, women and money. And it's and I feel like I get into this sort of deep relationship with whatever theme we're I'm working on and putting together for folks. And it's amazing just the different energetic talking about money versus talking about trauma. And as I'm listening to you you know, just like, and, and I'm saying this out loud, just also support the listener right now of like, as you're talking, I'm thinking flashing on my daughter and I'm flashing on things from my past and ways that I am interrupting trauma cycles and ways that I'm still not interrupting trauma cycles. And, and so I just wanted to presence that because 
if you're listening to this, you might be having your own activations or even weird sensations coming up in your body. And, and I'm hearing Dr. Marielle and I'm also affirming like, because this stuff is very real and it's, it can be subtle or not so subtle, but it, it's impacting all of us all day long is what I feel. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I'm so glad that you're mentioning that because it's really important for us to be gentle with ourselves when we're learning these kinds of things. Because we have to remember, you know, we live under socialization. We are socialized beings, right? And so um, when we have the experience, either, you know, in our own family unit or in our larger community, that a specific set of behaviors or thoughts that we now are understanding can be, you know, representations of trauma, if those were normalized, if they were deemed normal, either because we just didn't know any better, right? Or we just didn't have the resources to to actually like, you know, kind of undo some of that work beforehand. Um, You know, that wasn't necessarily our fault, right? And so it's important for us to understand, hey, we're taking the moment now to actually learn about these things. That's something to celebrate and and to internalize and and utilize that as motivation to move forward with this, this kind of work. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And those, those micro celebrations kind of build the resilience to keep going and unpacking and yeah. Yeah. Mm. So I want to transition a little bit because I know another, as far as I understand, please correct me if I'm wrong, since we don't know each other before today, but part of my understanding is that another big component with your work is facilitating anti-racist education and workshops. And so I'd love to hear about that work and then also the intersectionality because of course they're deeply related. Absolutely, and they are. And, um, you know, the the work that I do, also my training, right? My training at, at Columbia Teachers College was training that um, infused social justice and the understanding of how our intersecting identities are um, are also uh, are also you know implicated in the ways in which we experience stress in this world. Um, so my training content derives from from that perspective, and, and I infuse that in my work. I mean, it's to me, it's you know, it can't be extracted from the work, quite frankly. Um, and and so the work that I do in, in with corporations, is I do corporate wellness workshops with corporations that are either about some sort of holistic or global wellness kind of um, practice or like for example today I will be hosting a wellness practice within a corporation that centers the black community and for individuals that are um, black identified and and I get called into um, many opportunities that reflect that kind of structure because there are many people that are operating as professionals, but are experiencing a profound amount of collective and historical grief in this moment in time. And so um, I bring in not only my social justice training and the understanding of uh, how we embody a politicized body and how that body then also interprets the stress of being chronically oppressed, 
Um, but I also bring in the very methodologies of healing that I know, you know, to be helpful in healing. And so my work is a, a bit of an, a fusion of both. Mm. And it sounds like you're finding a lot of interest and support in the corporate, in some corporate spaces, like they're, they're wanting to bring this in, they're open and receptive to it. That's right. Yeah. They're, a lot of people are hoping to, you know, create spaces for just racial healing for all, right? I mean, the thing about healing racial wounds and also healing the systems that continue to perpetuate those racial wounds is that the healing has to happen for us all, right? Like we are all, um, whether a person is Black identified, white identified, Asian identified, um, you know, Latinx identified, and anyone, you know, who identifies differently than those groups, it's important for us to understand that everyone is impacted in some way or another by the unjust system that we're all operating under. Even the individuals that hold some privilege, granted, it's a different kind of impact, right? Um, and the impact is is felt as grief within the Black community or within the communities that are impacted by violence. Um, and so we have to take that into account, of course. Um, but we have to heal the whole system and we have to heal the whole human community. And so we, um, in, in attempting to do some of that work, you know, I, um, I, I make sure that my, the work that I do is really centered on, on that truth. And, and so I think that, you know, um, I, I love the fact that there are actual corporations that are taking into consideration that the people behind the scenes that are keeping the corporations going are humans that are going back into lives that are really difficult mm. because they're carrying a lot of heaviness and that they're willing to hold space for their collegiate community. And I think that that speaks volumes to, you know, to the, the corporations that are doing this work. Yeah, it gives me a lot of hope hearing that that you're getting contacted and getting a lot of requests around this because I couldn't agree more. It's like we, we have to find ways of integrating this across all different areas of life and and across difference because we're we're suffering differently and we're all suffering as a result of this insanity and history. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the book, My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem um, was the book that helped me to understand that perspective just a little bit more, even though my training did emphasize it. Um, but it was just so hard to read as a Black individual, right? Because I thought, how could we, you know, um, hold space or or be compassionate to the individuals that are embodying the oppression, right? However, if, if we read into that text and understand how bodies are historical and we're capturing a lot of what we've been socialized to capture, um, it gives us a different perspective. And I think that can really help um, all healers, you know, to, to really look at this work differently. Yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful for that book. And I'm trained in somatic experiencing as well, but something about that book it just opened my eyes and my understanding to such a, at such a deeper level. Yeah, agreed. There's some, some good folks producing some good work and I'm grateful for them for sure. Yeah. I understand that you do a lot with sound and breath work. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, that's right. Can you share with us about, you know, what those modalities are like, how you understand them and how you, how you notice them affecting your own life or other people's lives? Yeah, absolutely. So the modalities um, are definitely some of what I've been embodying within the ongoing development of my holistic wellness practice. And they, um, they are really reintroductions of the healing methodologies that have been present for many of us in, in global communities um, for centuries and maybe even more. And so it, what I utilize are, are quartz singing bowls in my practice in order to do uh, sound bath meditations as a way of producing sound medicine. And the mechanisms of the, the sound itself, as I know it um, presently, is that it, uh, there are certain frequencies and vibrations that are emitted through the actual bowls that help not only to recalibrate the mind, but also the body. And in part, some of that is done really kind of through science, right? Like the, the body filled with water and the water, you know, um, receives the, the frequencies, it receives, you know, waves of vibrations and um, it allows for a restorative process to happen throughout the body. And that includes the hormonal process and in addition to, you know, so that some of the or an extension of that would be you know the hormones that are in overproduction of stress and so if you start taking into account a little bit of the science behind that right and the fact that we have this these beautiful tools that we can utilize to give an in vivo in the moment restoration uh, for a person that is experiencing or embodying stress within their bodies most notably then um, you know we have an, an opportunity for um, for there to be some sort of a release. Uh, so I like to use that, especially during times like whenever there's some sort of an unrest, or if there is um, some sort of an incident of police brutality or the murder of a black individual in our community. Um, you know, if there's the the experiences that we've had recently within the Asian community, I just I tend to hop on either to Instagram Live or wherever I'm, you know, called uh, to do some sort of a sound bath meditation in order to offer just kind of that release that people need more immediately, right? While also bringing in the power of the breath, which is, as we know, scientifically, is just something that really is um, powerful and restorative in and of itself. So when you couple the two, you have a really importantly um, restorative process and immersive experience that people tend to um, really invite in, which I, um, I'm, I'm very grateful that people are willing, you know, to, to do that. It's, I've only experienced sound bath meditation once with a, a dear friend of mine, and I'm just remembering it as you're talking about it. It's so powerful. Mm-hmm. It really is. And you know, I, I can't wait for the moment when we have a, a new world where, you know, um, we have an opportunity to do some of these practices in person because it just, they, they hold so much power when it's being done, you know, with people in the room, right? 
versus, you know, you, you kind of just hoping that the frequencies and the vibrations really navigate through whatever system you're using. Um, but it is, it is quite the experience. I think something that, you know, once you're able to experience it in person, you see um, its potency, you feel its potency, and, you know, it kind of leaves you with a shifted perspective. Mm, beautiful. So you, I'm just struck by the fullness of all these different aspects of your work and, and your life. And I'm like, how do you, how do you do it all? What is the structure of your days and your week look like? And can you just kind of peel back the curtain a little bit about your <laughs> personal world? Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I'm realizing that with everything that I do, and I think a little bit also, you know, it's just probably age, right? Just like my own very human limitations. I'm in my late thirties. And so it, it definitely factors into how much rest I need. Um, I actually take midday naps. So that is for me, um, something that I hold sacred <laughs> and, um, and, and I do so in a, a little bit of a ritualistic way. Like I, guess I meditate, I listen to, um, some sound baths or some medita meditation music, you know, whatever can help me to be in, kind of induce a relaxed state. Um, so I definitely do that. And then my Sundays I hold sacred as well. Like there is no work being done on a Sunday um, because I need a moment for just to pause and to, to do things like in the garden or, you know, mindfully play with my dog or, um, you know, have a moment to engage with family and all the things that are going to be, um, you know, what are, are the, the parts of me filling my cup. Um, however, during the week, I am a little bit more, um, it, my work has to look a little bit scattered. It just has to because there's so many hats that I wear. I'm also a professor at Columbia um, in, in the same department where I, I, I trained. And so, and that's in the evening, right? So there, there's a lot that happens in my day. And so um, the pause that I take is usually in the middle of the day. And, and I make sure that I turn on my do not disturb. Sometimes I actually, and this is kind of nice, even though it may sound a little mean, but I'll leave my do not disturb on after my nap for a little bit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And I love that so much. Um, and and I'm I'm very intentional about it. Like I, I do it every single day. Every day, my do not disturb goes on, and I give myself an opportunity to just tune out the world. And so it's all of those like micro things that all contribute to the larger I am okay because you know I'm constantly making sure that I hold intention around my wellness and my sacred time. Mm. I'm inspired and grateful that you take such impeccable care of yourself and that you have your naps and your do not disturb. And um, it's for anyone listening, it's just such beautiful role modeling, you know, and, and this piece of, I am okay. You know, like I think, especially with a lot of the women that I work with, it's amazing how we can be in a stress response all day long. And we're just acclimated to that. Like we think that that's, normal 
And, and I'm getting, as I'm listening to you, that so much of the, the trauma, complex trauma, intergenerational trauma work is like finding the relaxation response and finding the okayness, you know, whether that's needing to look back or in the present moment or moving forward as you're talking about, but sometimes we really don't feel okay, even if we look around and our circumstances tell us we should feel okay. Right. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, a part of um, once we understand that a different kind of normal is possible, um, it's important for us to take it out, you know, with, with whatever healing practices or wellness practices we're engaging in. Because, um, you know, it, many times I've seen it get a little bit more challenging before it gets better, right? Because you're introducing something new into your world. And every time we experience change, there will be a bit of a shift that we have to adjust to. So um, that's one piece that I think we don't say enough about healing work, that sometimes, you know, the beginning feels like, oh, what is this? You know, that we just have to see it through. Totally that crunchy adjustment time. And mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. thank you for naming that. Yeah. So, okay. So you teach your professor, you do this um, corporate consulting. Do you see one-on-one -on -one clients at this point? I do. I have a full private practice. <laughs> wow. Like, and when I speak it out loud, it, it sounds like a lot, but I manage okay. <laughs> okay. And then you, am I right that you also run bigger groups, the Healing Collective, mm -hmm. where you do this sound bath and the breathing? Yeah. And I, you know, I produce, um, also uh, educational workshop videos for this community that um that you know like right now we're in an inner child healing series where i'm you know uh, producing um workshops related to the inner child and, and really kind of unpacking that more comprehensively uh from from the angle that i know right so that people can have that at their disposal so uh in the soul healing collective we do that kind of work and and we do like, um, we, we meet on a monthly basis, for the most part on a monthly basis in order to um, process uh, some of the work that's being done as well. Dang, I'm so, it's awesome. Do you have people that help you? Do you have a team? You would think, right? Um, so not quite, although I do have one person that helps me with one aspect of my work, which is social media, and that's my sister. She helps me with her brilliance to, um, she, she's had a, a bachelor's in psychology as a former social worker in the field and, um, and also just practices self-care and wellness in the many ways that I do as well. So one thing that we love to do together is that we love to engage in mindful practice together. Like yesterday, we actually, for about two and a half hours, we baked a focaccia bread. And if anyone <laughs> bakes bread, you know, there's, <laughs> there's, there's so much that goes into that process. And it just, it's so incredibly, it's so relaxing, right? Well, it's very meticulous, but it also can be very relaxing. So we do mindful cooking together. And, you know, she does me the, the honor of like, sometimes like recording some of that for me. And like, we, we brainstorm on what can we do that can be, you know, fun and lighthearted and um, it can also produce a mindful experience. So she helps me with that piece and, and 
eternally grateful to her for that, for, for sharing moments with me, because it's also kind of my way of just getting some sister time in, but also, you know, for being willing to record it. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, thank you for everything that you do. I just, I, I was telling you before we recorded, I went deep into binging on all your stuff just to get a sense of you and your work before this interview. And um, I, I'm going to ask you how people can find you, but I highly encourage listeners to go check you out because it's just, you have a wealth of resources, information, little reminders. It's, it's really beautiful what you're creating and putting out Thank there. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And um, the work that I'm producing for the most part can be found um, through my website. It's www.drmariellebouquet.com. And um, more prominently in terms of social media, I'm on Instagram and more newly on TikTok. Um, and my handle is the same on both. It's at dr.mariellebouquet. And having a little fun on there while also producing, you know, knowledge to just, uh, you know, have uh, spread the knowledge of mental wellness onto the world and hoping that people catch on to it. Well, certainly a lot of people have caught on to it and I'm sure it's only going to just grow bigger and bigger because it's so, it's such a contribution and so valuable. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have a, a couple of my last questions for you, which are some of my favorite questions of these interviews. And I talk a lot of, in this community about the importance of celebrating ourselves as women and also being willing to name and claim what we're proud of about mm -hmm. ourselves. Cause I think, and it, it feels deeply related to intergenerational trauma and trauma at large. We don't do that enough. And so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share with us about one thing that you feel really proud of about yourself or one thing that you're celebrating in your life right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this, and this definitely is something that, you know, um, is something that I'm proud of. Um, based on the intersection that I that I am in, and the at the intersection of being both woman and black, and it's the fact that I am doing a much better job at not shrinking myself. I think we're just socialized to do a lot of that, and um, with the exception of when I intentionally apologize and with a heartfelt apology to someone, I've done a pretty good job at erasing the word sorry from my vocabulary and that is it feels really good <laughs> um the the um incessant sorries that we tend to you know speak out into the world when we're shrinking ourselves because we just that that just kind of is our default of you know what we've been taught to do um it's something that i'm i'm shedding and and it, it's just something that it feels much more aligned with who i truly am mm. Thank you for sharing that and congratulations. That is huge. It's enormous. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. I I love you not shrinking and without even knowing you very well, just imagine the less and less shrinking you do, the more beauty and benefit and contribution and light there is for you and yeah. for all. Thank you so much. Yeah. And then, you know, as as women of this world, you know, we, we have an opportunity to model forward, right? I, I want whatever young girl is able to see the way that I carry myself into the world. And if, if they're able to see that and see it modeled, then 
and represent that, I think we'll be doing some good, you know, for all women. I couldn't agree more. And your presence and your grace and your, I feel the relaxation mm -hmm. response emanating out of you. And it's a huge modeling. So I feel gifted by it, just spending this hour with you. It's beautiful. I appreciate that very much. Yeah. Okay, so the final question is, if I handed you a microphone and I told you that every woman in the world across all different background experience could hear and, and also really deeply receive your message, what would you most want us to hear? Oh, goodness. I would want us to hear the message around um, the possibility of us being willing to tap into each other's humanity. I can't imagine, because I haven't really seen it, what it would look like to have profound and unfiltered sisterhood, loving sisterhood that isn't marked by a lot of what keeps us apart. And I wonder if people would be willing to chip away a little bit more at whatever that barrier is so that we can embody more of what is the possibility for us as global sisters. Mm. Thank you so much, Dr. Marielle. This has been a true gift and an honor. Thank you. It's been an honor for me, Emma. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Today podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and take a moment to leave a rating and a review. The more five-star ratings this podcast gets, the more easily women around the world will be able to access this valuable information. Remember, we each have our unique role to play in this collective uprising for women all over the world. Whoever you are and wherever you find yourself in this moment, there is a deep intelligence to your particular place in the wider web, and we need the specific experiences, insights, and gifts that only you carry. I am sending you my heartfelt strength and support for wherever you are on the journey, and I'll look forward to connecting again next week.